0: Episode 180, Dave Sobel, host of the Business of Tech Podcast. I can run a company into the ground just as easily as those numbers.
1: (laughs) I'm Mark Graben. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Dave, his podcast, his company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake180. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and my guest today is Dave Sobel. He's the host of the Business of Tech podcast, and he's the owner of MSP Radio. Dave is regarded as a leading expert in the delivery of technology services with broad experience in both technology and business. He owned and operated an IT solution provider and MSP for over a decade, Both both acquiring other organizations and eventually being acquired. So before I tell you more and stumble through Dave's bio some more, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Dave?
0: I'm great, Mark. Thanks for having me.
1: Really excited uh, to to hear your story and have a great conversation uh, with you um, about about your work and your your business. Let me tell um, everyone a little bit more about the business of tech. Um, So it's a leading IT services-focused news and analysis podcast and YouTube show. Uh, Thousands of listeners and subscribers. He also uh, co-hosts the podcast "Killing It," or is that that's that's a play on "Killing It"?
0: Exactly, it's both. It's but we call it "Killing It."
1: Killing It. Um, it's not a true crime series involving IT professionals.
0: You know what? It would be really boring if it was, if that was what you're looking for. No, we dive <laughs> no. into to IT topics and give a give a sense of where we th- why we think it's important or not.
1: Okay. And uh, Dave is also the author of the book, Virtualization Defined. Uh, He has a bachelor's degree in computer science from the College of William & Mary. Uh, He lives just outside of uh, D.C. with his wife and his two cats, and his interests include travel and food, cheering the Washington Nationals and the Capitals, and more particular around food, smoking barbecue. So uh, a recent guest, Jason Levin, uh, episode 163, he's also in D.C. He's a huge Nationals fan. But I want to ask you instead, though, uh, Dave, before we get into, I was going to say get into the meat of it, but um, (laughs) that came out anyway. I tried stopping it, but it uh, came out anyway. But it's too Uh,
0: obvious. You can't (laughs) resist a good barbecue joke like that.
1: Yeah. Um, So I wanted to ask you not about the Nationals, but about barbecue. You know, I'm a, a Texan by choice. And so barbecue is really important to me, of course. Do you have a favorite cut of meat that you like to smoke?
0: Yeah, for me, for me, it's a uh, it's it's the shoulder. I do a shoulder, and I do sort of North Carolina styled pulled pork. I have absolute appreciation for all of its forms, and I love a good Texas barbecue. But I'm that mid Atlantic region, so I was kind of raised on the pulled pork with the vinegar style sauce. That's the the style that I focus on, and then I also have gotten to come to love to. I do my own bacon. Like I will smoke my own pork belly and and do my own homemade bacon. Nice. I,
1: I didn't come here to fight about different barbecue stuff.
0: <laughs> well, people get all in. Like, that's That's one of those fun, you know, kind of contentious barbecue. And I just look at it and go, it's all delicious. And yeah. I enjoy it all. <laughs> so I don't need anything <laughs> to be best. I just need it all to be good.
1: Yeah. So, so Dave, you know, uh, boy, rather than turning it into a barbecue podcast, which I'm, I'm <laughs> half tempted to do, and I, I ate lunch, so I'm not hungry. Um, but there's a podcast about mistakes. So uh, you know the different things that you've done in your career and your businesses, Dave, what would you say is your favorite mistake? so the
0: number one i that I always think about when I want to get asked about this it's all about the acquisition that I completely messed up and so to, to give a little bit of context, so I launched my i t services company in two thousand two. And the reason is, is I'm I'm a computer science guy. The reason I include my computer science degree in my bio is I'm I'm very proud of the fact that like I'm an actual engineer, despite the fact that I do all the sales and marketing and all the conversational stuff. Like I have a degree in this. I'm actually good at the technical stuff. Um, And so I'd spent my my time, that late 90s time in writing a couple of dot coms, like I wrote, wrote startups up and down. And when I launched my first company, it was because I was on the technical team and we all got laid off. When the company hit down times, we all lost our jobs. And my quip at the time was the, well, they kept all the leadership and all the salespeople, the guys that couldn't figure out that bit, but we could figure out the technical solution. Huh? They got to keep their jobs. I didn't. I can run a company into the ground just as easily as those numbnuts. (laughs) That literally was what I said, and I struck out, and I I won my first contract to deliver IT services about two months after I launched, and and that was the rest of the business. But that's the context, was this element of, like, I can do it. I'm an engineer. I can solve these problems. I can get into the the weeds of that. And my business was around delivering IT services. So the idea is is most small companies – Don't have somebody internally that can handle the technology, so they work with an outsourced company. We were delivering those services. That's the context for my mistake. (laughs) So the biggest mistake was: oh, I screwed up an acquisition, and I screwed it up royally.
1: So, so the mistake was not starting the business, but the mistake was this acquisition. I mean, what 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 happened? What did you expect to happen? What did you predict?
0: Well, so so. uh, I was approached by another business owner saying, Hey, I want to sell my company. I'm ready to move on. Uh, I'm ready to do something else. You've got a well-known company in the, in the area. I think you, you, you could potentially buy this. And okay. I got, and,
1: and and you had been in business how long? I've been business? in business right.
0: about six years. At the
1: time. Okay. So you'd so, probably hit some stride.
0: Yeah, I, I, Thought I would was reasonably good at what we were doing. <laughs> I'd, I'd learned a lot. Uh, you know, I was a good operator. The business was solid. We were making money. It was growing. Uh, I I was you know involved. I was involved with a peer group, so I was meeting with other business owners and and we talked through this. And it felt like a, a good idea. And I got very excited. Uh, and I sat down and I did a spreadsheet and I did plans and I I did the whole how we were going to do this. And spent a lot of time on the paper side of it and not enough time on the people side of it. And what ended up happening was, is I did a great job structuring the deal. And the moment we started executing it, everything went sideways, just horrifically sideways uh you know the the clients that were sold to me were not what was positioned uh the the staff actually started undermining the deal right away the owner took off for the hills and what i really was struck with was the i didn't wrap my head around the people side mm-hmm. nearly enough mm-hmm. of this entire endeavor
1: so when you say the paper side of things, elaborate on that. Do you mean like looking at the the, the, the financials and kind of the, the technical, rational business? Oh, yeah. I had side fi- of the business. I,
0: exactly. I had figured out how the contract should look, what the profitability should look like, what the numbers were on growth, uh, how the project plan would work, how the technical implementation would go, how the software deployments would go. All of the stuff that I could do in Excel, <laughs> that I could do in... Uh, that I could do on the technical software side, like we we use the same backend systems so that we use so the invoicing systems would all integrate really well. We use backup technology and I'd figured out how to make all that stuff work. All those details, I'd figured all of that out, but that wasn't actually what was most important about doing an acquisition.
1: So yeah, we can explore that more. So for 6 years you would say you had outperformed the numnuts. <laughs> you didn't <laughs> you didn't run it into the ground. Um those numnuts with their MBAs and I say that as somebody with with an MBA as well as uh, technical uh degrees. But you know the knock against MBAs might be that they only look at the paper side of the numbers, the financials. How 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 did you So I guess you know you you fell into that same trap. How how did, how did you discover? You know, you kind of pointed out. You said employees were maybe why were they undermining the deal? They they didn't want this change. How how did you discover that?
0: People are averse to change, and you know, the the moment you it, you bring the two groups together and, and you start changing things, they liked the way things were. And frankly, the the business that I was buying was a lot less disciplined than the one that I was that I ran. Um, and so they were used to certain freedoms and certain ability to to do what they want, and they had a very loose culture. And you know, one of the, one of the tricks to the way I was doing IT service delivery was you did a lot of standardization and a lot of procedure so that you could very consistently deliver the service. That intuitively sounds like a really good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But not everybody wants to work in that kind of environment, right? And so I made a big culture shift for these new people. And I didn't spend enough time on getting them to buy in, to actually like doing the work of developing the relationships and working with each of those people. And I just sort of assumed everyone would see, my, see it my way and see it the way that I was running the business. Eh, not so much. Uh, didn't spend nearly enough time on both integrating those people and then working with the leaders, you know, at that at the seller and making them responsible for some of the delivery, so that we could work together with the clients and so that we could message the change in the correct way. And really, it was a lack of understanding of the fact that I was changing the culture of what was happening and the people side of it, that if I'd spent much more time on that, that would have been key. And then the second thing, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out to the fact that I got too excited and I didn't do enough due diligence to really understand the pitfalls that I was getting into. I modeled out what I thought the business was going based on the data that had been given to me by the, the owner. But what he'd actually done was also held back a little bit of information. And if I'd been much more aggressive about looking for that and being very concerned by any lack of disclosures, much more than I was, a lot of things would have I would have caught earlier or potentially probably not even done the deal based on looking at the fact that there were probably more red flags than I was willing to admit based on getting excited and it seeming like a really good thing on paper.
1: Yeah. So was it, too late to make adjustments. Were you able to dig yourself out of the hole and, and, and try to get people on board? Or at some point, uh, did, did some people decide to leave? Did you have to get rid of some people? And
0: I, I navigated down the middle. Uh, we ended up losing almost all the clients, and we lost all but two of the staff at the time. Now we, I, I found, but I and I gave opportunities for them to get on board as much as they wanted, and then found ways for people to to leave, or they left on their own. Um, the clients, you know, the client base was not what was sold, but we did a great job of of trying to recover. And the big thing that I'm actually most proud of during that from that time was that we'd actually done some damage to our existing client relations, because of course, you're spending all this time trying to fix these new problems you start damaging some of your own relationships, but we managed to do a really good job of pulling it all together and keeping all the old clients. So none of my old clients got lost and I didn't lose any of that, but it was a, you know, it was one of those periods where that was six months to a year of mess that I really made by just not spending enough time on the upfront due diligence and investing enough in the people.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Dave, I appreciate you for, you know, being willing to tell that story and, you know, to share the the I'm sure at the time painful lessons learned from that. Um, did did you did that scare you off from doing other acquisitions, or did you have an opportunity to do another one, applying the lessons learned from that first one?
0: Well, the cool story is is that when I actually so I sold my business in 2011, and I took that experience and I did the exact opposite when I was acquired. I actually, because I also identified that it was a good time to sell my business. When I started courting and looking at people at acquirers, I went the extreme opposite and was completely an open book. The moment we decided we were going to start talking, besides signing an NDA, I then gave them complete access to everything. I gave them access to my financials, and I gave them access to all of the documentation. I gave them access to my people. I gave them access to even talk to clients if they want to. We went the entire other way. And I'm really proud of the fact that when I actually sold my business, they had a very seamless transition. And even three years later, had retained every single employee who wanted a job and 80% of the revenue that I sold, including the vast majority of the clients. And it all came from learning from that mistake. It was taking the bad experience and saying, okay, I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to do it differently. And we're going to do it better when I sell.
1: Well, and that's, that's good of you to let the buyer of your business benefit from the mistakes you had made. Um, I wonder if they. Uh, you know, I wonder what the odds are. They they might have made some of the same mistakes. Or were they, were they prompting you for some of the things you were you were already planning on doing based on your lessons? Were they asking for more transparency? Were they focusing more on the people side instead of the paper side? Or they, did you help, were... help steer them that way?
0: They were a better acquirer than I was. I I will give them credit for that. Uh, But because we'd started the conversation from a place of complete transparency, because I just said, this only works in my mind if we go to that. We actually fell into lockstep really fast. We did the deal reasonably quickly. We did it all within about 90 days, which is a pretty fast sale and and migration. But we both credited with saying it was because we were as transparent as we were and we built trust really fast. We also had known one another. I've kept in touch with them for a long time, even though and every year we always would get together for, for a meal and they'd laugh, I'd buy them or they'd buy me, and it was always some, some kind of conversation. But then we were able to really establish quickly that trust by just going full transparency. And I, I tell you, it has left that impression on my entire career that I have always gone now towards transparency always wins for me, because I've always found that that's just the better lesson. And, and i find better outcomes by just being transparent. Yeah.
1: Before we talk more about your current business, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you you talk, Dave, and again, our, our guest is Dave Sobel. Uh, I should, my mistake, I should have mentioned his website up front. It is businessof.tech. Uh, so business of tech is uh, the show. And, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, I'll put links in the show notes to the YouTube channel and uh, all of that, but Dave, you mentioned um, riding startups up and down. Like in, in your experience, or at least at that time, how much of that is just sort of the expectation going into it? That you think, well, odds are there could be mistakes made. The business is it's the, the nature of the beast that there might be an up and a down.
0: Well, I'm, I'm a big believer, and that's just the that's just life, right? Like you just have to ride the ups and the downs. And it's how you ride that really is much more more important. Um, and and I, I happen to be one of those crazy people that likes a little bit of chaos. So I tend to favor smaller companies over bigger ones. I think there's also be an argument of made that some entrepreneurs aren't wired by as like a deficiency aren't wired to work well in organizations. So they find ways of building a business around themselves to fix their own deficiency. I I'm envious of those that can work at large organizations and mm-hmm. can run that system. Cause yeah. that's not me. It's very yeah. much the, yeah. I like working on, on problems I can get my hands around unless I tend to favor smaller businesses. Um, so for me it's it's always been that I like the chaos of small, which is why I have always favored sort of startups and and la- lighter weight organizations.
1: yeah And so then what you're doing now, Dave, um, you know with what you're you're writing and, and doing podcasts and videos about and what you're covering, it's focused on on small businesses and and from what you see, what you hear about, there's mistakes small businesses make when it comes to you know, choosing or implementing software. What what are some of the most common mistakes that you see or hear about?
0: The the number one mistake that I always talk about is is measuring success. Uh, oftentimes, technology is viewed purely as just kind of an expense line item. Um, and I actually like to, I do this kind of good, better, best modeling for the way that I link technology spend to a business. I think it's good. If somebody views it as just an expense, just something that has to be done, and if I link that to your profit and loss statement, I talk about that being kind of at the SG&A level, right? But if you're, you're in that general expenses, okay, that's good, right? That's generally how most people are approving. It's better... When technology is used to apply to actually tie it to operational costs, when I'm trying to do savings, I I can make you more efficient. I can have you you need maybe less people, or maybe you can process faster. Like I consider that in my better tier, but the actual best implementation is when I can tie the technology directly to your top line revenue. It should be an enabler. It should make you. Sell more, grow faster. It should tie more to your growth acquisition. That's best. And so, the number one problem that I see is anyone that, that is just spending time on the technology and they're just viewing it in that good level. I start there. And because I can find that almost always I can tie all the problems to the way they're approaching technology. The real companies that are killing it for me are the ones that are at that best level that they've tied it directly to the top line portion of the business.
1: I mean, how often do you see, I wonder what an example would be of uh, businesses implementing software or some technology because it's trendy?
0: Happens a little too too often than you think. I mean, the, the greatest example right now, of course, was the, the forced version of it that everyone, when everyone went virtual in, in a two-week period in March of 2020, uh, that wasn't trendy. That was because everyone was forced to it. I love conversations around that because... The now the ramifications of that choice are really becoming very clear. And I'm again seeing that stratification of the way people are approaching it. The people that are becoming really good at this are the ones that are thinking about culture and the way that they're going to manage people and the way they change the measurement of their business to take advantage of what's possible versus those that are are saying, well, we're going to measure this based on how many days you are in the office. It's like, and I can instantly tell it's like, okay, you're not really measuring the right stuff because this can be transformational for your business, or maybe it shouldn't be. Like that's a space I want to give to, but those are deliberate choices versus kind of accidental
1: ones. So earlier, you know, you talked about your acquisition, you talked about paper and people. It seems like there might be situations where a business is looking at technology and they focus on the paper side. And ignore their own people when it comes to acceptance of change. So true. <laughs> so true. Yeah. And and this is well, oftentimes I talk a lot with the, the people that
0: are delivering the services. And the number one thing that I implore them to focus on is the people side of it. Are we investing enough in training, in the why of the technology? Are we making sure that we're focused on policies and procedures and the how it's implemented correctly to be, take advantage of it? We have lots of conversations around security these days, right? The number one reason people are dealing with ransomware issues or security issues is because of people problems. And it always comes down to like policy or not enough education or not enough training and enough, enough, those pieces. That's not a tech problem. That's a people problem. Now, the two go together. We've got to do a good job on the, on the parts together, but it all comes down to the people side.
1: And it seems like there could be a mistake in either direction—a mistake made choosing a technology that the people all want, but doesn't have an ROI, which might be again the paper side, and uh, what you're describing of choosing something that rationally makes sense or the the numbers might be there, but then there's there's the adoption. So I'd be curious to hear. Let me, let me turn that thought into a question: selecting the software versus implementing and adopting the software. How often does a company make so it may be the right technology choice, but then go about it the wrong way. What That's are some of the a, mistakes that happen post-purchase? It's almost always the actual problem. Mm-hmm. Like, it, the, the interesting
0: piece for me is, is, as a general rule, most software is fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, like, it generally is fine. It's going to be close enough it's how you actually take advantage of we've got tons of stats around most people only end up sort of using 30 to 40 percent of the software they buy anyway uh so we know that they're buying it kind of based on the the promise but not fully implementing. why not well because you haven't done the people side of it or made sure that they're all trained and effective with it and that you actually match it to making sure that it's delivering against those business goals those companies that really do embrace it, I know that they've gone all that distance and they've measured all of the why of the software. You know, Most of the time, all the software is fine. Most times it's not there that the mistake was made. It's always about how it was implemented within the organization.
1: And it seems like there could be a lot of dimensions to that. Um, how, how are they communicating? How are they explaining the why? I mean, how often does a company basically like, have the money to buy the software, but then not have the money to do the implementation correctly.
0: Well, and from my perspective, it should all be wrapped up into the actual proposal, the entire package. You shouldn't be buying something if you have not actually scoped out the how the implementation will work. And that may just be time, by the way, particularly for many small businesses, that's just devoting the staff resources to training everyone and explaining it and making it rolled out and making sure that managers are embracing it and doing all of that. Even down to as literally as simple as like, you know, we're using remote technology right now to talk to one another, right? But most people have not actually been taught the power of the tool and how to use it correctly. One of my things that I always like to talk about is is that we all talk about Zoom fatigue. Well, the reason Zoom fatigue happens, one of them, is that humans are not wired to look at themselves. And a simple thing you can do, for example, is turn off the self-view. I do that on every single meeting that I'm in so that I don't get tired. But, but if no one's been taught those tools, that they're there and the why of them, well then, yeah, the bad effects start happening because they have, you've not gone the full distance to be a good manager. If you're a manager, by the way, you have to be extra emotive when you're online. You've got to be bigger and louder <laughs> and a little bit more online because you're losing some of the connection through the technology. That isn't a bad thing. It's a just a statement on the way the tech is. Yeah, because you can have a longer reach. And if you don't get into those details, you're never as effective.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, my my pro tip uh, for the listeners, for it's worth. So I, I don't know if it would screw up the recording if I do self view. I should I could test that. I should <laughs> test that sometime. My my trick is to uh, just slide a window in front of myself so I can see. I can see Dave, and I don't need to click on him during the meeting or anything. So my my window with some of my notes and questions, uh, when I remember to do it. And you're right; it's better. It's less. Yeah, it, it's, it's better if I, I wasn't doing that. But I, you, you mentioned it. I'm like, oh, right. Uh, that's a good practice. And, and, it, dra- and it comes down to the it's window all about, over.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's about the psychology and how it literally is about how your brain is wired. Your your brain is not wired to see itself. Mm-hmm. That often it, it kicks into a different sort of, you know, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but it, your brain is sure. wired not to, to work that way. So it becomes very uncomfortable with that. Um, you know, one of the other little simple things is to, you know, if you're getting to the remote stuff, is to make sure that you're looking at people and you've sized the windows correctly so that it looks like it should and everyone's roughly the same size. There's ways to do that. These are the kinds of tricks that. Systematically, an organization can roll out so that all managers know how to do how to use the tools effectively, so that they can actually spend the time working on work versus you know being slowed down by the
1: tech. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap up, Dave, and again our guest is uh, Dave Sobel. Uh, Business of Tech is where you can find him and, and learn more online. There will be uh, links in the show notes. Um, so we we talked earlier about your favorite mistake. And I think you know part of the reality, part of the human condition, myself included, is we make mistakes all the time. I've made plenty of mistakes today. Um, is, is there a recent mistake that comes to mind of, of, of something where you thought, oh, well, it just proves, hey, we're all human?
0: You know, it's, I, I don't internalize them as much as I used to because I've become really comfortable with just test and try again. Um, yeah, just just if you're asking, like, what's the most recent mistake? Oh, I totally I messed up uh, implementation on some marketing stuff just last week. Um, you know, tried it all out. All results were wrong, all bad. <laughs> uh, but being forgiving of that really fast is is the other thing that I've learned. Of that is is if I'm not reaching, if I'm not failing reasonably often, I'm not trying hard enough. <laughs> is is that is that i if i stay if i know if i'm not failing, I have to measure it as is okay I'm too safe right now um I need to be stretching more and get comfortable with that failure. Now I need to own the failure. And I also always caveat by saying, and you have to be a good person too. Like you have to make sure that you're not, you know, mistreating somebody during the process of that. Those failures are, 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 are to be handled a little bit differently. But particularly from a business perspective, it's like, oh, you're not trying hard enough mm-hmm. if you're not making some mistakes. My most recent, yeah, it's oh, I screwed up a marketing campaign last week. That didn't go well but that's okay, right? Yeah. It's it's not a defining feature. It's something that I know I did it, I tried it, I measured it. Okay, that doesn't work. What are the lessons from that? And how do we adapt for the next campaign?
1: Yeah, I think I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm kinder toward myself when it's a, a mistake of having being on the frontier of something new. Here's a situation I haven't been in. I didn't know I made a mistake. But you know, one of my most recent mistakes from this morning, I'm trying to um, help interview somebody uh, for a company I'm affiliated with, and I had sent out the invite, and the invite had a Teams meeting kind of just embedded into it. But then I put in the location field Zoom link to follow, so there was a mistake. And then my other mistake was not discovering. Oh man, you know, about two minutes before the interview, I'm trying to make a good impression of this person that we're trying to hire, and I created this confusion. Now, thankfully, she did what the meeting invite said; she clicked on the Teams meeting. And uh, it worked out okay, but uh, we have another interview tomorrow. And like, I'm going to not beat myself up over it. You know, we're talking about it more now than than maybe I had initially when I discovered the problem with somebody else. <laughs> but um, there's there's something to be said for showing a little bit of grace, whether it's to ourselves or to others. When I've been thinking about,
0: I've been thinking about grace a lot lately, and making sure that I'm not only remembering to to be graceful on those kinds of and give space for that. But to remember oftentimes the mistakes from, from maybe because of reasons I don't have insight into, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the likelihood of somebody, if somebody's in a in a mood and the meeting didn't go well or something along those lines, it probably is because of something I'm not aware of much more than it is about something that I am aware of. Like if I think, if I, if, you know, I had a, had a discussion with somebody last week and it just felt awkward and weird and I kept, Thinking about it and wondering why why that went that way, and I was like, you know what? It's probably something I'm not aware of. I something in their home, maybe their children are sick, maybe there's some some other factor I'm not aware of, and I should just leave more space for that. And I, I think <laughs> yeah. that's another bit that I think about a lot recently when I think about grace.
1: Yeah, and I, I try to remind myself this. You, I'll send you one of these mugs, Dave. Uh, my my favorite oh, like, mistake mug. Uh, the the other side that I look at as reminders to myself, I've mentioned this on some other episodes, but my my reminders here, uh, be kind to yourself. Nobody is perfect. We all make mistakes. And the important thing is continuing to learn from our mistakes. So um, that sounds very Mister Rogers. <laughs> Mr. Rogers-ish, almost. I'm no Mr. Rogers. I was about to say, Dave, thank you for illustrating all those, but now it sounds kind of mean to say you illustrated the idea that nobody's perfect, but,
0: <laughs> but you know what? I will take any day I get compared to Mr. Rogers. There are, <laughs> that, that, I'll take it. That's like, that's high praise. And I really appreciate it. Yeah.
1: But I, I do appreciate you um, being willing to talk about mistakes and to share the learning and, you know, um, how you've reflected on that and being kind to yourself in the process. So, so Dave, thank you for being a guest here. Um, again, Dave Sobel is our guest. Um, you can find him online, businessof.tech. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you can find Dave. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can go search, go find Dave on YouTube. And for those who aren't watching, I'm going to mention this because I, I asked Dave about this before. Those who are not watching don't see the two really cool old late 1980s, early 1990 computers behind him on the desk. For those who can't see what they are, I guessed one of them because I I had that same computer, but those two computers are
0: I am, I'm a big retro computer guy. I've got the uh, Apple IIgs, which is the machine I learned to program mm-hmm. on, and the Commodore yeah. 64, which was the first computer I had. And I'm very proud of the fact that that's the actual monitor I grew up with. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm a pack rat, but I like that, that old no, stuff.
1: Very very cool behind you. So uh, for, if you're not watching the episodes on YouTube, you uh, you can do that. And you you can rate people's office and the cool stuff that they have <laughs> behind them. But Dave, thank you again for being a guest. Really, really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for having me, Mark. Really appreciate it. This. this was a great
1: time. So, again, to learn more about Dave Sobel, the Business of Tech podcast, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to slash mistake one eight zero. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems. Because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.